0: Hey guys, a few weeks ago in a talk on anger, I offered up for your consideration the words of Jesus' brother, James. Here's what he wrote. He said, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone, and that would be all of us, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, not to respond, not to respond, but to listen. And he relates listening to time. It's kind of interesting, right? Be quick to listen. In other words, there is value in hearing sooner rather than later. And I can't help but wonder how many relationships could have been saved, how many careers could have been kept, how many wars could have been halted if we would listen quickly, like the first or second time you're made aware of something. Imagine listening hearing and then acting the first time or second time, you heard of somebody else's fears or failures or pain. Instead of just tuning it out, instead of just flipping the channel, or instead of just trying to dismiss or solve a problem, being quick to listen. And then James says, be slow to speak. You see, we don't value being slow to speak we value off-the-cuff remarks. We value calling a spade a spade, and, and we champion people who are fast on their feet. I should be quick to listen, but, and maybe you know this too, it's hard to be quick to listen when I'm too busy trying to be quick to respond. It's, it's really hard to be quick to listen when I'm too busy formulating my rebuttal, my comeback, and the only thing I'm actually listening for is a pause in your narrative so I can shift the conversation to my point of view. And then, finally, James says be slow to anger. Not don't get angry, but be slow to get angry. In other words, be like God, who when he introduced himself to Moses said, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. You see, God gets angry, as we discovered, because God is abounding in love and faithfulness. God loves justice. God loves mercy. God loves His children. And we see violence and oppression and injustice. God gets angry, and so should we. Now, as your pastor here over the last couple of weeks, um, I've been trying to do these things in relation to what seems like the never-ending racial divide in our country, which has once again been inflamed by the seemingly never-ending incidents of injustice that are being suffered and experienced by people of color in our communities. I've been trying to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I've done this because, again, as James wrote, human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. You see, I've lived long enough now to know that snap judgments quick responses, inflammatory rhetoric, social media commentary, they amount to a lot of noise. They can be wonderfully symbolic, but so often they lead to so little. And so it seems like that's why we have to go through these cycles again and again and again. Quick to listen. Instead of formulating a response or trying to find counterpoints and facts, what I've tried to do is listen. And I want to share with you what I've heard over these weeks, and I've heard it over and over and over. Here's what I've come to understand. To be a person of color carries with it an implicit mindfulness and consciousness at best, or or maybe at worst, an outright fear of police and the criminal justice system. I've heard it not once or twice but over and over and over again that maybe the most common teaching from parent to child in a person of color's home is that whatever you do if you get pulled over keep your hands in sight and do not reach for your your wallet. You see when I was growing up my parents were teaching me to drive the only instruction I got about getting pulled over was to make sure I had my driver's license insurance and registration card That was my parents' greatest worry. But for people of color, their parents' number one worry, their number one teaching is keep your hands in sight and don't reach for your wallet. And so now, if you're white and you're hearing this and you're immediately forming your rebuttal, well, here's why that happens, or statistically speaking, that's not exactly right. See, then you're not being quick to listen. This is, and we need to understand this, apart from our rebuttal, our statistics, this is the reality of how it feels to be black in America today. I'm not just hearing this on TV. Yesterday, my daughter, many of you know, my daughter Caroline is going to Notre Dame and and she's gonna run track there and they had a call for the track team to talk about what's going on. And one of her coaches, who's an African American, shared that one day while driving a recruit home, He got pulled over and questioned in Indiana because what was a black man doing with a a young white girl? Kelvin Walker, who's the district superintendent for the Metropolitan District of the Christian Missionary Alliance, an African-American man. He shared with me this week that when he was the pastor of Bedford Hills Community Church, which in New York, Bedford Hills is 4% white, he was driving home from Christmas Eve services And he was stopped at a light and made eye contact with with a police officer. And he watched as the officer turned around and followed him all the way through town until he got to his house. Because he was a black guy, driving around at night in Bedford Bedford, uh, Hills at, at Christmas time. I've got African American friends in this community. They're professionals, one's an attorney. And he's told me many times, he has a nice car, he said, I get pulled over on a regular basis. See, in Mendham, New Jersey, guys, where the population is not 4% African-American, but 0.9%, we're going to have to listen to these stories. Our job isn't to rebut them, but to feel them. Here's the second thing I've heard. People of of color feel categorized or pigeonholed, and here's what I mean by that, or I think they mean Over the last weeks, along with peaceful protests, we've seen the looting and the rioting. And unfortunately, to be a person of color is to know that the actions of a few seemingly always get associated with the many. You see, as a white guy, there's never been a time when I've looked at the looters and and seen white looters and there's been plenty of them and said, oh no, now what's everybody gonna think about the white people? This is terrible, they're all gonna think that we whites are looters. But unfortunately, this is what happens to people of color. You see, for whites, the actions of a few are rarely if ever used to categorize the many, but to be a person of color is to have to deal with that injustice day after day after day. Now I just wanna give you two more things I've heard as I've tried to listen. Third. In the white community, we see individual incidents of injustice or racism. We see what happened to George Floyd, and we all agree it was horrendous. But we think, look, the officers were fired, and and then they were charged, so everything should be okay. We should just let the justice system do what the justice system does, And, and that's because our experience is that the justice system works. But that is not the experience for people of color. And when we make this just about one incident and go, well, look, see, things are better now. We got this one right. Well, then in the face of all the other inequalities that exist, poverty, education, healthcare, housing, frankly, it becomes somewhat insulting because we're missing the bigger picture. It's a collective anger and grief that the black community is feeling, while for the white community, because we tend to only see individual incidents, we don't understand what we perceive to be an overreaction. Here's the last thing I've heard over these last few weeks, and this is super important too. It's from police officers that I know or have heard from. They now in many ways are experiencing some of the same injustices of categorizing, pigeonholing, and violence. I believe that in just the last couple of weeks, we've seen hundreds of police officers injured and several have been killed. Guys, I am close to several policemen. We have several that come to this church You know, my college roommate dropped out of school in the last semester of his senior year because he was admitted to the police academy and he wanted to serve the community that we both grew up in, and he's been doing it for nearly 30 years. Are there racist cops? Of course there are, but there are racist pastors too. See, the cops I know, and again, small sample size, But I'm unaware that any of them that I know went into law enforcement for any other reason than trying to be a good guy, one of the good guys, a servant and a protector. I don't know any of them that are not just as upset or more upset actually about what happened to George Floyd than my friends that that are police officers. And so guys, I've tried very hard to be quick to listen this time. Because maybe if we all are, we won't have to go through this as often as we seem to do. Because we haven't listened. And that's what I've heard. And so now after these weeks, I also want to be slow to speak. Some of you might even be thinking, why are you even talking about this? You are going to get killed with emails. And I get that. I said I'm being slow to speak. I didn't say I'm not a little fearful to speak. Why? Well, because, look, here's the reality is, I'm a white guy talking about racial injustices that I've never experienced. So the reality is I speak from some level of ignorance. Second, and you know this, when tensions are high, words get filtered and run through agendas and run through personal experiences and they often get misunderstood. And guys, when everyone is hot, They can get misunderstood by everyone and thus the apprehension. It was Martin Luther King that said, quote, in the end we're not going to remember the words of our enemies but the silence of our friends. See, being slow to anger means not so much getting angry slowly but getting angry about the right things. Or, as he much more famously put it, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We're seeing that now. Okay, so here's the deal. In this series, Opening Up Me Again, We're concluding it today, what we've been looking at are the issues of the heart, the things that are down deep inside us that make their way out. And so we've been trying to get at those issues, knowing that if we do the hard work of heart work, let me say that again, I kind of like that. If we do the hard work of heart work, it might, might, it just might result in the transformation that we're looking for, the healing and life change that so many of us desire. Yet, I don't know one of us that would say, yes, deep down in my heart, I have a racism issue. I mean, we're gonna admit to jealousy, envy, bitterness, but racist, or bigot, or biased? No way. Now, I want you to know I'm not ignorant enough to believe that outright racism doesn't exist, and that some people, in fact, are proud of it. But I believe that to be a rather fringe minority which I know it shows up on the news, it makes its way into social media accounts, they're there, they're despicable, and they need to be eradicated. Those kinds of people are much easier to see and root out. But for the rest of us, bias and racism is much, much more subtle. Some of you know Tony Evans. He's an American, uh, African-American preacher out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, I've been to his church. I think Joan and I might have been the only Caucasians there out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks, which really did give us a perspective of what it's like for a black family to come to church in Chester. Tony, who's been unknowingly to him a mentor of mine for 30 years, posted this this week. Racism isn't a bad habit, it isn't a mistake, it's a sin. The answer is not sociology. It's theology. It's a sin issue that we all share. None of us, black, white, Latino, Asian, none of us are completely free from its toxicity. You see, it's a sin issue. It has to do with our shared broken natures. Where does it come from? Where does it originate? Well, science has been doing some work on this, and it seems to be coming from something that's taken on the name of implicit bias. An implicit bias is an unconscious attribution of particular qualities to a member of a certain social group. Implicit stereotypes are shaped by experience and based on learned associations between particular qualities and social categories, including race. And all of us have them. Look, I'll give you an implicit bias some of us share. When I say peanut butter... What's the next thing that comes to mind? For many of us, it would be jelly. There is a a bias there. When peanut butter is brought up, jelly comes to mind. There's an association. With the Yankees, it's winning. With the Mets, it's losing. And those implicit biases are funny, but many of them aren't. Very few of us are out-and-out racists. But we all have implicit bias issues that despite how we consciously feel, they impact how we unconsciously respond. It seeps into just about every aspect of our life, including areas like criminal justice. 30 years of neurology and cognitive psychology studies show it influences the way we see and treat each other. Even when we're absolutely determined to be and we believe we are being fair and objective, Implicit bias comes from the messages, the attitudes, the stereotypes we pick up and re- research over time, and from, here's what research over time, excuse me, it says that, and this comes from various countries, implicit bias tends to line up with general social hierarchies. In all areas touched by implicit bias, implicit bias, including race, we tend to hold biases that favor the group we belong to, what researchers call the end group. Studies have shown implicit biases that favor Germans over Turks in Germany, Japanese over Koreans in Japan, men over women when it comes to career-related stereotypes, youth over elderly, straight people over gay people. So it is no surprise that race is a primary area for implicit bias. And if you live in America, you can probably make an educated guess about some of the ways it tends to play out. Other things, there's a widespread preference for light-skinned over dark-skinned and white over black. These results are rarely reflective of conscious attitudes, yet they're still there and active. So if you're in the majority in-group, Implicit bias is not such a bad thing. It tends to work out for you. But if you're not, though, it can be devastating. The research is clear and unambiguous. It impacts how minorities are treated. For example, research has shown that it can affect healthcare. In one study, despite self-reporting very little explicit bias, two out of three clinicians were found to harbor implicit bias against blacks and Latinos. And it turns out this affected the care that their patients got. It's also been connected to racial discrimination in hiring, performance evaluations, housing discrimination, and even perceptions of neighborhood crime. Now, how do you know if you have it if you aren't able to see it in yourself? Well, it's not easy. But scientists have come up with a test. It, It measures reaction time. It relies on the idea that we closely associate two concepts in our mind. They'll be, if we do that, they'll be easy for us to sort. And if we don't associate them, it'll be harder and take more time to sort together. The most popular of these tests is the implicit association test. This week I took it. I was not pleased by the results. The test is free. All you have to do is Google it, and I'd encourage you to take it online and see for yourself some of the gunk that you and I have associated together in our subconscious minds. Now, why do I tell you all this? Well, for two reasons. The first is that I think it helps explain why so many of us who don't have racist thoughts, mindsets, or objectives, can subconsciously be part of the problem. And I know we don't want to be. The second is that it is an age-old problem the scriptures address over and over and over again. And believe it or not, you can see it most clearly in the life of Jesus' disciple, Peter. Yes, Peter, that Peter. If you're from a Catholic background, this is the Peter that's the first pope. This is the walk on water, Peter. This is the breakfast on the beach with Jesus after the resurrection, Peter. This is the Peter or the rock on whom Jesus said he's going to build his church. And it turns out it was also Peter who had an implicit bias issue. He had a heart issue which was contributing to racial injustices that he was participating in in Jesus' church. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus, the only person with zero implicit bias who's ever lived, He's beginning to get a little famous in the town of Judea for baptizing too many people and he's starting to run amok of the religious leaders. And so he decided to head back to the town of Galilee. John records what happens here and he puts in the most interesting detail. It's crucial that we don't miss it. Here's what he says. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. John says Jesus had to go through Samaria, to which we might say that would make sense. If you look at a map, Judea was uh, to the south, and Galilee was to the north, and Samaria was in the middle, so of course he had to go through Samaria, except he didn't. At least no good religious upright Jewish person did that. Jews did not go through Samaria. Jews went around Samaria. Jews avoided Samaria. Why? Because for the preceding 800 years, there had been great 800 years Great racial discord between the Samaritans and the Jews The background story on this was that in 722 BC Assyria invaded Israel took some of the Jews to Assyria where they intermarried and produced what was referred to as a half-breed race known as the Samaritans thus the racial divide You see the Jews referred to the Samaritans as dogs they were the underclass they were the underprivileged and they were definitely not the in group so no no good jew would even draw near samaria except john lets us know that jesus had to go through samaria why does jesus have to go through samaria because jesus is an appointment to keep now some of you know the story he comes upon a samaritan woman at the well and asks her for a drink and here comes another hint from john about What's about to happen? When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. You see, his disciples were not there. It was just Jesus alone without any other racial history. And so the woman said to him, You're a Jew which is kind of interesting that she knows this because Jesus hasn't said anything yet about being a Jew. And, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And so what's interesting is what her, caught her attention, it was, as Tony Evans puts it in his book, Oneness Embraced, even though apparently he either looked like a Jew or talked like a Jew, he was not acting Jewish because he was willing to put his Jewish lips to her Samaritan cup. He was not going to let the prejudices of everybody else in his race, their implicit biases formed over nearly a millennium, inform how he acted. He wasn't going to succumb to 800 years of racial racial prejudice that had defined their relationship. He was going to function differently than any other Jew this woman had ever met in her life. And I can't help but wonder if there is not some unseen significance here. Some of you know Jesus later would ask, Are you able to drink from the cup that I shall drink of? And he was referring to the pain and suffering which was coming for him. And to this woman who has spent her life in pain and suffering, the underbelly of the empire. Facing the judgment, the oppression, and the injustice of society, Jesus says to her, I'll drink from your cup. I'm willing to share your pain, to experience your suffering, and to understand your loss. Which sometimes I think those of us who are part of the in group, the majority, we need to be willing to say to those in the minority, just like Jesus, I'm willing to drink from your cup and share in your pain, to experience your suffering, and to understand your loss. I need to be quick to listen to you. Now, some of you know the story. Jesus, after showing his willingness to drink from her cup, he then challenges her her on her lifestyle. He says to her, go call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. And I like this now, she like we, when confronted with kind of a tough issue, a sin issue, she tries to change the subject. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Shocking, he saw right through. She goes on, she said, our ancestors, they worship, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Let me change the subject, Jesus. Let's get back to the issue at hand. Why are you talking to me? See, our ancestors, notice the plural. This has gone on for a long time. They worshiped on this mountain here. We've been doing it for nearly 800 years. This is what I've been taught. This is what's important to my background. I've got pictures of my house of my grandfather worshiping on this mountain. But you Jews, you Jews, you—you notice the racial language. You people, you claim that Jerusalem's the place to worship. Now check out Jesus' response. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and he, His worshipers must worship in Spirit and truth. Tony Evans puts it this way. Jesus is essentially saying to her, you worship what you do not know you and your daddy were wrong about this your heritage your history all the stories you were told they're all mixed up your family was wrong what you picked up from your your family lineage was wrong maybe what your father or uncle or great-grandfather has said to you is not quite right the news channel that you you choose to watch your experiences back in college the way you've just always done it, yeah, that's not it. It was wrong. You're biased. Just like the Jews see Samaritans and have an implicit bias that rings dogs, Jesus says, you, have, you see me and you have a bias that goes another way. Here's the truth, Jesus says. A time's coming where the mountain won't matter, where your biases will fade where your old ways will change, your habits will morph. You don't need mountains, you need truth. That's what the Father wants. He wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Not as Samaritans or as Jews. Not as blacks or whites. History is not the issue. Background is not the issue. Spirit and truth are the issue. And the biblical witness is filled with the the truth when it comes to the issues behind these racial biases we hold. Jesus' church, yes, this Jesus who goes through Samaria, he actually winds up staying in the home with the Samaritans for the weekend. Jesus who changed 800 years of racial prejudice in one afternoon. His church has not been nearly as good. And you see it right from the beginning. Luke records it in the stories of the church's birth and acts. Acts chapter 6, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the church was just getting its start. The Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. See, they had divided the Jews into two categories. There were those who had remained in Judea and who used the Hebrew language, and there were those who had been scattered amongst the Gentiles who spoke the Greek language and had adopted Greek cultures and ideas. And so there was an in-group, a dominant group, that had an implicit bias that resulted in a social injustice. Guys, have you ever heard the term church church deacon? That was invented. The church deacons were invented to overcome this racial injustice. Only four chapters later, in Acts chapter 10, Peter, who suffers from an implicit bias that tells him Gentiles are inferior to Jews. Yes, Peter would tell you that God loves them, but he really believed them to be inferior. And and so some of you know the story. He's having devotions one morning up on a rooftop, and God shows him two things. The first is that what his background, what his daddy, what his religion had taught him regarding dietary restrictions and food laws, kind of like the mountains uh, that we worship on, they were going to need the change. And so God lowers down on this sheet all of these previously forbidden foods, and he says to Peter, now you eat. And then he pushed him even further and tells him to come down off the roof and go to the house of a Gentile, not just any Gentile, but a Roman centurion Gentile, a soldier whose army had been persecuting his people. And so now Peter's got to be thinking, Lord, I don't eat that kind of food, and I don't hang out in the houses of Gentiles. It's forbidden. Peter here is Gentile. He thinks two things, impure, unclean, impure, unclean. It's implicit. It's his bias. Nevertheless, though, he comes down off the rooftop, and he obediently makes his way to the home of Cornelius, the centurion, and here's what happened. As he enters, the scriptures say, while talking with him, Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. This is how bad the tension is in the house. He acknowledges it because everybody in the room can feel it. But, he says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. But God has shown me, Peter said. God had to show him God had to expose something inside of him to the light of spirit and truth for Peter to see it in himself. God had to change his heart and his mind. God had to help him overcome his old thoughts, patterns, ruts, and biases. And that's our hope as the church. In chapter 15... Sometime later, this all gets codified in an agreement at the Council of Jerusalem that stops the separation of Jews and Gentiles forever. Where both Jews and Gentiles decided that there was something bigger than their differences, their histories, and their cultures. Sure, they were important, but they were willing to make concessions when it came to some of those things. They were willing to give a little, and that's why you and I are here watching this morning where the Gentiles invited in, they decided that what they had in common, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was greater than what it was that divided them. It was the church that changed the world when it came to racial divides. It did it once. And guys, it could could do it again. And this is why the church is the voice that must speak into this, that must lead It's the church who's the only one who who can lead. And you and I are the church. Is it easy? Heck no. We all got a lot of baggage and bias in here. Heck, Paul would later tell the, the Galatians that he had to straighten out Peter again. Old habits, old prejudices, old biases, they're hard to change. They don't die easy. Paul writes that Peter was embracing his new habits. He wasn't just eating impure foods, but now he was eating it in the homes of Gentiles. It was a new habit, but yet suddenly one day when some of his old buddies showed up, here's what Paul writes. When they arrived, he, Peter, began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Those were the, the, the Jewish believers of the day. And then, not only that, check out what happens when Pastor Peter leaves the table. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, you've got to be careful here, guys. You've got to be careful with who you follow. Paul goes on. Barnabas sees all of this. Jesus, or he sees Peter leave. He sees the other Jews leave. And Paul makes a point to say even Barnabas was led astray. Why does he highlight Barnabas? Because Barnabas was from Cyprus. It was a Gentile colony. He knew Gentiles. He went to school with Gentiles. He grew up with Gentiles. And as Tony Evans says it, this is how bad racism can get. It can even make a good man look bad. It can make a good man do bad. Even Barnabas And what changes? This could have ruined everything. What about the Jerusalem Council? This could have redivided the church. But it didn't. Do you want to know why? Because someone was there to say something. In this instance, it was Paul who stood up. Paul, the church's great evangelist, Paul had the courage to say something. He writes, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, worship in spirit and truth, I said to Cephas, Peter, In front of them all. I love that he corrects them. In front of them all. Because it's a lesson we all need to learn. He says, Peter, you're a Jew, and yet you've learned to live like a Gentile and not a Jew. That's the gospel. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile any longer. We are all one in Christ Jesus. How is it, Paul says then, that you force Gentiles now to follow Jewish customs? This is how serious that sin was. How important it was to the church that Paul was willing to confront Peter on implicit bias resulting in racist tendencies publicly. Mendham Hills, this is our heritage. It's our story. It's not rooted in our individual stories, our individual customs and cultures. They're important, no doubt. God's not asking you to lay any of those things down, but he's asking you to prioritize spirit and truth over them when it comes to spirit and truth in regards to these things. Our faith in Jesus has to become before all of them. We're not Anglo-Christians. We're Christians who are Anglo. We're not black Christians. We're Christians from an African background. Christ comes first. Do you know how this story ends about Peter? You know, Paul challenged him with Paul saying what he did. You actually do. Here's, what, here's how Paul concluded. He writes, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's right. Believe it or not, one of the most famous verses in the Bible is the conclusion of a story about race. That's your story. That's our story. It's the church's story. And so, Madam Hills, I wrap this up with your Q-tips of the week. First, understand that you might not be a racist. I doubt you are, but I'm certain you have some implicit biases. Discover them. Care that you do. Reflect on them. Take the test and see. Second. Be quick to listen. Listen. Be willing to share the cup of bitterness that people of color all around us have had to drink. Enter with them into the pain and the suffering of the loss, and then finally, be the church. Slow to speak and slow to anger, but church, as followers of Jesus, when it comes to this issue, we are commanded by the Scriptures as modeled by our Savior, to be angry, and to speak. The church changed the world once when it came to this issue. It can lead and do it once again, too. I'll end with this picture. It gives me hope. It's a picture of a kingdom march organized by a a bunch of churches in New York City. Somebody posted how it concluded the other day. Was there anger? Yup. Were people speaking up? Absolutely. Did the gospel change everything? I hope so. It still can. I'll see you back here next week. i, praise. I praise a hallelujah.